It's Monday, February 5th, 2018. I'm Jeremiah Simmerman, and this is episode 148 of the 5049 Podcast. How you guys doing? Thank you for joining us for another conversation between myself and another musician today. That musician is composer and pianist Kelly Moran. That's who you hear back there. Kelly Moran's on the show today, and uh, we're going to get right into it. I first became aware of Kelly uh, and her music probably about this time last year. Uh, I saw her at a performance at Roulette. Uh, She was accompanying my good friend Toby Driver in a performance of his ballads. She was playing piano and and organ, Uh, and I, I had no idea who she was. I've become pretty um, hermetically ignorant in the last couple of years. I, I don't really get out to check out a lot of stuff. Uh, and But once I became aware of her, I, it just seemed like she was everywhere. Last year, she put out this record called Blood Root. Came out on the Telegraphic Harp label. Solo piano compositions uh, for, for prepared piano and electronics. And it's pretty exceptional. It's really, really exceptional music. Uh, she creates a sound world that is immediately evocative, very singular, and um, you know, rooted in a lot of different worlds. I would say, uh, you know, obviously, whenever you sit down at the prepared piano, comparisons to John Cage are, are going to be inevitable, and it's there. You hear it, um, but that's you know, it's 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 much more nuanced, much more complex than that. Aesthetically. Um, I find, you know, uh, the the sound world is not so different from a lot of the the sound worlds that that metal musicians and and more extreme musicians uh, like to inhabit. It can be very lonely, uh, dissonant. These are things that I like. Kelly's originally from Long Island. She grew up with guitar player Andrew Hawk out there in the island of Long. Some of you guys might remember Andrew from episode 57 of this show. That's already almost 100 episodes ago. She's uh, she's carving a pretty unique path for herself. You know, it wasn't long ago that the trajectory of the concert pianist was uh, was pretty clear. You know, you, you did things a very specific way, and if you were good enough at your instrument, you looked forward to uh, a certain type of career of interpretive music. And you know kelly's really drawing her own path she's working with the people that she wants to work with uh and and you know i think she's at the start of that path uh she's making a great start and you're going to be hearing a lot from her for i think many years to come if you want to find out more about kelly uh go to her Bandcamp page and there you can check out all of her music it's kellymoran.bandcamp.com kellymoran.bandcamp.com uh like i said She's 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 starting out pretty early, but she's already got a lot of stuff going on. Um, and I, I think you know if if you're a fan of this show, you're a fan of a lot of the music that we talk about on the show. You know, I think you're in for a treat. KellyMoran.BandCamp.com. And if you're enjoying this show, please consider contributing to it in Patreon. And let me just say thank you to everyone who has contributed recently. Uh, it it really does help. You know, I'm I'm finishing up my taxes right now for 2017 and. Uh, I can tell you that it helps. Go to patreon.com slash 5049podcast. And uh, if you want to help out and, you know, you're a little light, 
consider rating and reviewing and subscribing to the show on iTunes. That helps. That's it. I hope you guys are all doing well. Here's my conversation with Kelly Moran. Are you from New York? I am. From New York City? No, I'm from Long Island. Oh, really? Yeah. Where? Uh, Port- <laughs> I'm from Port Washington. <laughs> do you like Long Island? I do, actually. Well, Port Washington is, like, nice. Yeah. I feel like people have a really negative view of Long Island. Yeah. Like, so many people hate on it, and I don't understand it, because I'm like, you guys, you all live on Long Island, you're just in a different borough. Of, right. Yeah, which like a lot, I love telling, like a lot of people don't realize, like you're on the fucking island that you're making fun of. You're just in a different part right. of it. But I actually, you know, I love it and I totally think that I will definitely move back really? someday. Yeah, I mean, my parents, my parents just bought a house last year in Glen Cove that they moved uh-huh. to, which is like the next peninsula over from Port Washington. They live like within walking distance to a nature preserve and a beach and but that's also kind of like a, a nicer part of Long Island. Yeah, no, it's nice. It's like on right. the North Shore. There, but it's like they're right by the woods. They're right by the beach, the <laughs> right. water, and it's like I stayed with them over the summer because I was in between my leases, and I kind of like wanted to just like hole up and work because my piano's at their house, mm-hmm. and uh, I it was just so healing. Like I feel like I'm the kind of person that, like I love nature and I love being in nature, and I feel like it affects me so much. I yeah. love being able to go hiking and go like swimming. Like I did that every day this summer. Really? And it, yeah, and it was so nice, and it felt really healing. And I feel like that pace of lifestyle suits me way better than like right now it's fine because I feel like for my career and my job I have to right make a living here but I hope that like someday when I like eventually like inherit that house I'm really looking forward to just like right. I, <laughs> I know mean, that sounds like dark but I'm no, just like waiting for the day where I can just like live in a house with my grand piano and I can just like and not feel rushed yeah yeah I mean I dabbled last year with living upstate I, I oh, did yeah. it part time for a few months, and I always thought, like, you know what? It's probably a part of me, you know, that's like gonna say goodbye to the city, live upstate. Mm-hmm. And one thing I realized is, one, it's only good to live outside of New York if you can afford to not, if, if you could still earn New York money. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, if I lived up there, like, I'd have to become like a mechanic or like a yeah, like a meth dealer or something. <laughs> yeah, I don't even know what I would do. You know, it's like, would I just teach piano lessons or would I, like my dream would be to like, just be able to, you know, compose like soundtracks or or things like that, like from my home. Home studio. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So. That is the dream. Yes. Wait, so you, your piano is in this house in Long Island. Yes. Did you, do you record your stuff there? Mm Mm-hmm. You don't go to the studio? No. No, because I record everything myself. That's how I save the money. That's, <laughs> that's right. how I make everything I mean, myself. Yeah, I do everything myself. It, that's surprising and impressive because those records, I mean, I listened to the newest one. It sounds really good. Thank you. Yeah, that one, it's funny. That one was actually recorded in a different, like my parents were renting a house in Glencoe uh-huh. uh, for two years before they found one that they liked enough to buy. Right. And so that was a different house. Like that was in this weird like duplex that they lived in where they like literally shared a wall with the house next door. And I, for it was funny because for Bloodroot, I had to contend with all these like weird 
environmental factors because I'm never recording in a room that's perfectly soundproof. You mean like what we're hearing right now? Like Yeah, like right. stuff like that. Or like, you know, like the the wall that's right next to the piano had like pipes that like sometimes you'd hear like water running through them or outside the birds were so loud. Like that's so like a good loud. Ambient yeah, like I don't mind that kind of stuff. But it's funny because I, I think so on before Bloodroot came out, I re- did a self-release called Optimus that was actually composed after Bloodroot. Mm. It was kind of because I made Bloodroot in early 2016 in it very quickly because it was during when we had like a, a snowstorm mm. in early 2016 and I kind of like just couldn't leave the house and so I hunkered down. I was like, how about I like write a piece? Like first it was like, how about I write like 10 pieces that are all like a minute long and then it became yeah like something just to kind of because i hadn't done anything on my own in a very long time like i had been in voice coils and cellular chaos right so i was like basically in other people's projects for two years and i was kind of using other people's bands as an excuse because i think i was too scared to do anything on my own and i wasn't sure like what path to take or where Uh i fit into any of the scenes i was in i felt like i didn't really like fit in and anytime i would go to a show i was like i can't imagine like playing any of my stuff live so but you were still writing at that time yeah, but not really as much. I would write things, but I never really finished anything and nothing was ever cohesive enough to like, you know, really develop into a project. And I just feel like I was focusing too much on other people's projects. Was it bumming you out that you weren't? Well, it it was, but I think I, part of me was like, you know, when I was in voice coils, I was totally prepared to just like have that be what I did. I was Wait, ready what, so to I, be I, I know so you're chaos, but yeah. what was voice coils? Oh, voice coils was a band that I was in with uh like it it was from 2014 to, and then I quit in 2016 with like Sam I don't know if you knew Sam Garrett or he know. used to work at Roulette oh. or Kaylee Monahan Ward was, yeah. it was me Kaylee um, my friend Cameron who was in the band Porches uh-huh. um and Kevin Wonderlich from Couch Slut okay. and Mitski was yeah, yeah. our singer um, it was, but it was basically Sam's project. Like he wrote everything. No one wrote anything but him. We were all kind of just like basically like hired musicians for this project, but it was a band. And so it came with like the struggles of being in a band where you don't have a lot of money and you play like, sure. you know, um, but I was really devoted to the project and it was, it seemed like it was developing into something that would be a little bit more collaborative, um, and I think just because I didn't know what I wanted to do on my own, I was ready to just like kind of be like this band is my thing and this is going to be what I do. Um, But then this opportunity arose where I just kind of forced myself to write for prepared piano, which I had never done. You'd never done that before? No, I'd played a lot of prepared piano pieces in college. Um, Like Cage? Yeah, I did like in my junior year of college, I basically had finished all my piano performance credits for my major and I wanted to focus all on like 20th century music just everything written after like 1940 like I just wanted to do all experimental piano music and I studied with a teacher at Michigan basically like for free like I didn't get credit for it because the piano department said that I shouldn't be getting credit for studying this repertoire. Which wait, is, wait, wait. They they yeah. actually said this music isn't worth school Yeah, well, credit. it's so weird. It, the, the weird, well, the really weird thing about funny. it is that I had 
So like my major in college was called performing arts technology and there were four different subdivisions and I was in the first subdivision where you were also a performance major. So I was also taking piano lessons in addition to studying recording, electronic music and composition. So I was taking piano lessons with professors at Michigan and I never really clicked with any of the professors because I kept wanting to study new music. And I also wasn't like a typical piano major. Like I was maybe like a level below what real piano majors were. You mean so. at, at your skill Just level? Just my or skill your... level, yeah. Like, yeah. I'm good, but I don't think I'm... I'm not, like, a prodigy. I'm not a virtuoso. You know, I'm not, like... I'm not the kind of person that practices, like, six hours a day. I've right. never been that kind of musician. It may be, like, two Just hours. doesn't hold your interest? Well, I, I just... Uh, just maybe for, like, two hours. I've always been a little bit too scatterbrained when it came to music because I've... My whole life, I've played so many instruments like guitar, bass, clarinet, percussion, singing, like writing. Mm -hmm. So I feel like I just had too many things that I wanted to do that focusing on one thing felt too difficult for mm -hmm. me. Like I, I would play piano for a while and then I would want to go write or compose or make like weird electronic music. Mm -hmm. So it just never really felt like my wheelhouse to just be that kind of pianist that I just practice for 11 hours a day playing other people's music. Yeah. Um, because it's really a technical thing at that point. Yeah. I mean, it's it's obviously it's interpretive, but really most yeah. of that time is spent. But it also just wasn't satisfying to right. me because I felt like there wasn't a point in me playing a piece that other people have played so many times and played so much better than I have. Huh. I felt like I wanted to do something that would help me stand out, something huh. that other people weren't right. doing because it just didn't interest me to learn. You know, you know when you're in a practice room and you're practicing and then you hear someone else playing the uh -huh. same piece like 10 times better than you it kind of made me feel like why why am i doing this like so other you, people have already like done glenn this. gould playing bach there's no part of you that says i want to be able to do that or well no because yeah. i don't i don't want to be glenn gould like glenn right. gould is perfect at what he does and i just i just never wanted to be that kind of performer i just and i think i just it's not in me it's yeah. not in my nature to want to like be the best at beethoven or to be the best at schumann or anything uh -huh. like that i wanted to do things a little bit differently and i got really interested like i was studying classical music for a while and i think i was just getting tired of it and then when i started hearing stuff like cage and henry cowell uh george crumb all these like different pieces like no one was playing that and so i was like i want to do this like, the music this as interests. a listener excited you. As, yeah and to play it and yeah. to like use those techniques and learn about them was so much more interesting to me than playing all these older pieces that have that have been done millions of times by other people so uh this funny thing happened where i was studying with this teacher uh at michigan who was my piano professor and i had told him that i wanted to learn contemporary music and he said okay well you should study with this professor who wasn't a piano professor his name was steve rush he was a uh he was a kind of multi-purpose professor who uh -huh. was in the performing arts technology composition and the dance department but he was a trained pianist who specialized in contemporary repertoire so i had my piano teacher my potential piano teacher and the head of my technology department all sign a letter like saying like kelly wants to do this like this is kind of an independent study proposal she wants to do this and study for credit yeah and the piano department rejected it on what grounds they said that they didn't think a pianist at that school should be studying these pieces for credit like they just didn't think it was an appropriate 
repertoire for me to study and get credit for, which was insane to me because yeah. I was like, this music is so much more recent. Well, it's like, also, why? I mean, this is what, less than 10 years ago, I'm guessing. Yeah. So it's like, it's pretty well established at this point that this is important music and has been a major contribution to the world. I guess, but I think it's just that so many music schools are just still so traditional that they just couldn't imagine like letting somebody do this. What, and like, have... this, like it's a cop-out or something? Like if you study Cage's prepared piano, it's not going to prepare you for, for Bach? I have no okay. idea. It right. was so it was so weird to me because I had three professors sign off in it, one of whom was like a dean, and they still rejected it. So I was just like, okay. But then the teacher was like, fuck it. We'll just do it on our own. Like, I'll teach you for free, even if you don't get credit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So my whole junior year, I was studying uh, Cage's music. I was studying uh, Philip Glass, Henry Cowell. Uh, and I, so I did this crazy junior recital of all these different You selected uh, composers. The, the composers? Or yeah. The, yeah. Well, he would bring pieces to me. Like, he'd bring me, like, certain Webern pieces or, like, you know, pieces that he thought I should be learning that would help widen uh, my perspective uh -huh. as a pianist and as a composer. Just seeing all these different ways of playing piano. He taught me, like, how to prepare piano, how to you know, do an extended technique without hurting the piano. Like all of these things. This is important that stuff. Have, yeah, all yeah. these things. And it was just crazy that he, like I'm forever grateful because he did it for free. Like he didn't get credit. He didn't get paid. I didn't get credit. We, it was just kind of a labor of love where I had these lessons every single week. I mean, I know you can't speak for him, but what do you think uh, about this prospect uh, made him feel excited or generous or? or... Um, I think, well, he... He and I were very close just as like a prof like I I always got along really really well with him as a professor. I had taken a lot of his classes. We were just close on that level, but I think it was also he was an expert in this music. Like he regularly performed the Cage sonatas. Like every single year he did an illegal concert in the dance building on the last day of classes where he <laughs> would perform all of the sonatas and interludes. Yeah. And um, so it was kind of his thing. And I think he wanted to share it with a student. Like he would teach, like he taught this repertoire in his like music history uh -huh. and like his electronic music classes. He would be teaching this material, but he wouldn't actually be teaching someone how to play it. And mm -hmm. I think it was satisfying for him to be able to share these things with him. And another weird aspect that I remember from one of my lessons is that he somehow, like, you know how certain people go to schools because, like, a piano teacher studied with someone who studied with someone who yeah, studied yeah, with... Yeah, yeah, it's a lineage, yeah. Yeah. Through studying with him, I had a lineage to Webern. Really? Yeah, and so he was teaching me Webern pieces, and he was like, well, he's like, the cool thing about this is that Webern taught it to this person who taught it to this person who taught it to this person who taught it to me, and now I'm teaching it to you. So I think it was also that that kind of... The conditioning. That, that yeah, happens, I yeah. think, yeah, to be able to pass it on to people because I just don't think there were many pianists he encountered that were interested in learning this stuff. So once I came along, he jumped at the opportunity and it completely changed the like the course of my life of course yeah. I mean, so I mean, aside from the repertoire as, as he was showing you you know approaches to prepare piano how to you know not injure mm -hmm. the piano mm -hmm. was he was there an aspect of it that was like encouraging of coming up with your own preparations or was it more like this is how you achieve this sound this is how you achieve that sound um it was more it was more towards like specific pieces like how to get these timbres i don't like it's funny because at the time i wasn't thinking about using these techniques to write with because i think 
think at the time it was very intimidating to me because uh-huh. I felt like if I prepared a piano and wrote stuff on it, it would immediately, those comparisons get drawn immediately. And I feel like I wasn't at the point as a composer where I felt comfortable doing that and having it be my own thing. You know, yeah. I felt like I needed to study this repertoire and study these pieces for a while before I really felt like I could internalize the techniques enough to use in my own way. I ended up studying that all that stuff my junior year. And then in my senior year, I kind of started doing it a little bit by like writing pieces where I would be inside the piano, plucking the strings mm-hmm. or like putting ebos on the strings of the piano. That's a great sound. Yeah. So yeah. I started doing things like that, but I never, ever wrote for prepared piano until 2016 because it just seemed very daunting to me. And then once I was realized I was going to be stuck in my house for three days, I kind of was just like, well, why don't I just try this and see where it goes? And it totally, totally changed my approach to writing like immediately. Like I just, yeah, yeah I just so? write because you hear so many different overtones and, you know, there's all these weird sounds and frequencies that come out when you prepare a piano that aren't there when it's just the naked piano yeah. by itself. And it just, just by playing it, First of all, it feels differently because all of a sudden you're feeling like a different response from the keys because there's something that's kind of like responding to you. Touching yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you feel like the way that the hammer hits the strings just feels differently. So just on a tactile level, I feel like I play differently on it. But then it's just when I start playing and I hear all the overtones, it makes me think about harmony in a totally different way. Sure. And I feel like it almost... Like there's a very gentle element of atonality running through Bloodroot uh-huh. that a lot of my other music doesn't have. And I feel like it was easier for me to have these like moments of dissonance that felt like they were tempered by whatever overtones were happening with the combination of notes I'd be playing. Yeah. So it just kind of, I don't know, I can't describe it, but I feel like it opens up a different side of me when I'm writing with it. Mm-hmm. Totally. I mean, I always feel like... Mm-hmm. <sighs> Like specifically with prepared piano, I think mm-hmm. like a lot of people like this, as soon as you hear it, you hear that percussive, you know, almost like chimey sound. You immediately think of the um, sonatas and interludes, mm-hmm. and it's hard, you know, for I think for a lot of people to separate what they're hearing from that. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I would, you know, if I was approaching something like that, and obviously I'm not a piano player, uh, I would have a hard time separating myself from it creatively you know yeah for sure it, i think there's like I, i'm not going to say who it is i heard a record that came out about 10 years ago by this pianist solo prepared piano and it was like a total snooze fest and it was just all it sounded like mm-hmm. was someone took prepared piano mm-hmm. eliminated like all the interesting and uh sort of like fucked up parts of it mm-hmm. and just streamlined it into this rhythmic thing that it just it felt like Come on, you can do better than that. Really? I, that's funny. I haven't heard that one. one. One of the first people I heard that I really liked doing prepared piano was Haushka. I don't know. Um, yeah, he uh, he he's. I think he does like a lot of soundtrack stuff now. Like he did sure. soundtrack for Lion with Dustin O'Halloran. Um, he he's been doing prepared piano for a long time, and he was kind of one of the only people I knew who was really doing his own thing with it. Like he yeah. does a lot, but sometimes his songs are a little bit cutesy not in a bad way but it's like you know you'll have like a cute little like ostinato and he uses like a loop pedal and will loop all these interesting things over but it is so so different from cage that i felt like okay he's doing his own thing with it so it doesn't feel like overly derivative and he Uh does he you know he does a lot of interesting things with it um but for me i felt like it was important to do something that was 
totally separate from what Cage did with yeah. it. Um, and that seemed really hard because I knew that there would be comparisons drawn immediately. But um, I think that for me, it was more focusing on crafting stuff that was more reliant on like the harmonic and the melodic content more so than the rhythmic sure. stuff. Yeah, and yeah. the funny thing is, after I made the record, I was listening back to one of the pieces, and I realized that I had like subconsciously stolen a rhythm from Cage. <laughs> of course, like because there was one of his in one of his sonatas. There's this like specific rhythm, and I realized in one of my pieces, I completely like like, like replicate like verbatim. Rep- well, just the just the sense of the rhythm, but it's yeah. not super. It's not obvious, right? It's by any means, yeah. But it was just funny. I'm like, no one knows, but but I mean, there's I like. Know. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm an improviser and I play with improvisers and that's primarily kind of where I'm, or it's it's a lot of where I'm interested in. I hear someone like Sylvie Covassier mm-hmm. or like Anthony Coleman and what they do with the prepared, prepared piano, like it sounds like they're setting an orchestra on fire, you mm-hmm. know? So like, I, I just like that, I, I feel like there's so much power in that instrument. Yeah, there uh, is. It's, I mean, it's huge. It is. And it's sad that it's people are so like <laughs> hesitant to let me let me prepare their pianos well oh, you need to wear, like oh i don't want you putting paper clips in my bows yeah, and well, it's, it's funny because i feel like after i did after i did this record and i was you know i don't perform super often i kind of just hold up and record and yeah. then every now and then i'll like emerge from my like swampy little cave to sure. play a concert <laughs> um but i remember you know when i tried to book my album when i was booking my album release show it was a nightmare because so many venues just don't really let you do it yeah and a lot of people used to and now they don't or they want you to use like the super super shitty piano that's gonna sound like crap anyway um and i was just like kicking myself because i was like why the fuck did i choose like the most niche thing to do like this is gonna be so difficult like i'm I'm, like planning a tour would be a nightmare so i kind of felt like this like why did i do this where did you end up doing it um i did it at joe's pub and they were okay yeah they were totally cool but it was just funny because they were like are you sure you want to do it here and not somewhere smaller because i'm like Right. Not exactly like a huge draw right now, but it was, but it actually worked out really great, and the yeah. piano sounded fantastic. So, as far as piano preparations go, are there like pieces of felt or like washers that are like the the Bosendorfer of preparations? Uh, no, I'm pretty, I'm pretty, I'm kind of a minimalist when it comes to yeah. preparations. There's one piece, like for the most part, every piece on that record uses the same, the same setup of preparations, which is just like a simple screw or bolt between like two of the strings. Sure. Um, there's one piece that ha- that I have a couple pieces of plastic in, like I cut up a Tupperware container and put the pieces of plastic on the strings. But for the most part, everything is just like a single screw or bolt. And I have, I organize them. I have like three bags of preparations, one for like the lower register, one for the mid and one for the high. Mm-hmm. And I just kind of finesse it every time to make sure that it's the right sounds I want. But, yeah, I'm, but yeah. I'm not like, I'm not super. Is there any yeah. aspect of, of chance that, that you yes. appreciate or look for? Yeah. yeah. And that's, that's actually something that I really like about it. And I think it's for me, I feel like I took another aspect of cage to bring it in. I like the fact that there's a certain sense of unpredictability yeah. with the preparations, because sometimes, you know, they'll move around as you play, like mm-hmm. they will shift their positions. Sometimes they'll literally pop out of the string while you're playing and create like, chaos I, I mean i love that yeah so it's fun for me and i like the fact that there is an unpredictability because i like having a little bit less control over it 
it's just more fun for me, I think, just having that sense of unpredictability because everything else I do is so planned out. So I like the fact that the sounds will shift very subtly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, you said you were doing electronic music for a while? Mm-hmm. It- well, I, I still do. Like, my next record is... I guess every record I've done has an element of electronic yeah. music. Like, Bloodroot was also, to an extent, electronic music because all of the other sounds on the piano came from the piano, but I processed them. Like, I would record like myself plucking the strings of the piano and then map them to like a MIDI control, like a sampler okay. and contact and then use like a MIDI keyboard to play it so that I'm playing it like a normal piano, but it's triggering the strings. But would something. you do that in performance as well? Or that was, um, that was like a recording strategy? That's a recording strategy. Sometimes when I perform those pieces, I'll perform like just to the tape, to the recording. Um, I'm trying to streamline my performance setup so that I'm going to be able to play synth and keyboard at the same time. Yeah. Sometimes with a backing track. Um, but my issue is that I tend to just go really buck wild in like layering and recording. So sometimes when I do something live, I have to figure out how to streamline it. Yeah. But yeah, most yeah. of the pieces on Bloodroot are like when I do them live, I don't do them with the electronics. I just play them kind yeah, of yeah, as yeah. is because the electronics are kind of just like very sparse textural moments. So I feel like if you're recording, I mean, I, you know, whatever, if you're recording your own music, mm-hmm. um, especially if, if you're a creative person, it's like a whole other level of composition available to you, how you shape the sounds and how you present them. Um, and oftentimes it's the limitations. It's, you know, the sound mm. of those birds and you, you know, you figure out ways yeah. to deal with it. Did being the engineer of your record, did it change the way you, approach the music or, or how the music turned out? Um, yeah, I think so because I, I've always been the only person on any of my records. Right. Like I've put out five recordings on like five comp. I've struggled to call them albums because one of them I feel what? like doesn't, one of them I feel like doesn't count cause it's all live. And then another one is Music that I composed for dancers that I feel like doesn't make sense when it's not paired with the choreography. Like wait, wait, it feels wait. like half of it. Okay. But I have like five albums on my. These band are like full length you, releases. Yeah, yeah. Do they exist in a physical format? Um, three of them do. My first one, the first album I ever put out, which my parents still say is my best. Yeah. Like my OG fans. Yeah. Um, that was very. That was like a all electroacoustic so it was all like chamber instruments with me processing them using like you know uh like fft and stuff like that why why is it your like granular synthesis right um i don't know i think i don't know i think it's like that was like the first like mature statement i made as a composer and Uh so they're just like attached to that but like some of the pieces on it like my dad would be like do you ever think you're gonna compose a piece like this one again and i'm like so you're what your parents sound cool they are they're very supportive yeah do they like uh adventurous music outside of what you do um they seem very receptive like they don't seek out music like neither of them are big like music people right um but they're very open to when i show them music Uh uh-huh they're very receptive to it and they can usually like find something that they like about it and i think maybe just from like hearing everything i've been doing it's kind of like worn them down a little bit so that like they're more (laughs) open-minded when they hear like weird stuff but like yeah they weren't it's funny because they weren't big fans of bloodroot because i think it was like the that was the probably the weirdest most weirder than the, the the chamber stuff 
Yeah, my chamber stuff. Yeah, because I was basically trying to be Nico Muley on my first album. Right. You know, like when you're like when I feel like when you're a really young composer and like I idolized him, I idolized like Steve Reich, Philip Glass, John Adams. Like mm-hmm. those were just like my heroes, and I wanted to write music like that. I think the album came out differently, but it's a very accessible harmonic language. There's okay, not, so that, yeah, yeah, there's yeah. not a lot of there's like one song that has like a little bit of dissonance, but for the most part, it's tonal and it's enjoyable to listen to to the average the average person who doesn't seek out adventurous music so i think it's like easy for them to listen to and then i think on bloodroot and that was another thing about putting out this record is that it was the first record i put out on on a label and it was absolutely like by a long shot the most like angular music i had ever put out by myself bloodroot yeah yeah and so i was a little bit nervous about it because it was such a specific uh like headspace for me that doesn't seem totally in line with everything else I've done. And I was worried that I was going to like weird people out. Really? Like, yeah. And just like repel people. Really? But, yeah. I was very stressed about it. I was like, Oh, this is like my first big statement and everyone's going to like be totally turned off by how weird it is. Really? Even, yeah. That's how I felt. I'm surprised you hear that. Yeah. They don't like, they don't love that record as much as my other ones, but they like my next one a lot. Your parents. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> It's nice that they're supportive, but it's just funny seeing what they like and what they don't like. Sometimes. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I know. Like my dad um, lives in Poland, and just as a matter of course, like mm-hmm. they go to every concert. Oh, cool! If the newspaper says it's an important concert, mm-hmm. so he'll go to you know Zorn and and whatever the fuck is going on. And to him, it, it, as far as I can tell, it's just hilarious. Oh he, yeah, I mean, he's like super dismissive of mm-hmm. it, you know. <laughs> and it's but it's funny to me to hear like I mean. My dad's not the smartest guy in the world. So it's funny to hear him talk about this music and sort of berate it. I I, I appreciate his yeah. like super limited scope. No, I like that too. It's actually helpful for me because it's nice. I feel like my entire circle of friends are all people who obsess over music and yeah. you know in varying realms of experimental music. So sometimes it's nice to just get an opinion from someone who is completely outside of that just to see what their reaction is. Isn't that funny though if you is. think about yeah. like if you were to take like I- I'm going to assume that some of the stuff if not all of it on on uh, let's say Bloodroot um the sounds you know you worked to get to where they are mm-hmm. you know so you could take this little like fragment of sound it could be one you know one quick gesture and you'd be able to look at it and say it took me three weeks to figure out how to get that sound you know mm-hmm. and then someone else would hear it and be like what was that a hammer hitting a nail yeah <laughs> i know it kind of puts things in perspective for what we do yeah but i feel like you know i'm very like it's nice that they are that they will actually like give it a chance. Like they, they'll like listen to Kralis and so like I'll play Kralis in the car and they'll like actually give it a chance. And it's funny hearing them like develop a vocabulary for music based on like things that I tell them. And it was funny. I was playing like the most recent Kralis record for my dad and he was like, you know, the reason why I like Kralis more than a lot of other metal that I hear is because other metal just sounds like chaos to me. But with Kralis, there's always an element that I can like hone in on and focus and recognize. And I was like, that's so cool. That's really cool. Yeah, like someone who doesn't listen to metal, who, you know, listens to the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, like that's his... It's his reference point. Yeah, 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 you yeah. know. So... So wait, when did the yeah. attraction to metal start? Were you always into metal? Um, I kind of grew up like listening to rock music. Um, I was, you know, in high school, I was really into like Tool and Metallica and okay. things like that. So I've always had an appreciation for metal and I've always like liked 
heavy music. Um, but I really started getting into like heavier forms of metal, like black metal and death metal when I was in grad school. Uh huh. So and what, how did you find your way to that stuff? Um, I had gone, I had met, um, it was because I, I was actually through Andrew Hawk. <laughs> I somehow um, knew you were going to say that. I went to, I grew up with him. I did not know that, but somehow that, like, yeah, that adds me, up. him, Theo from Couch Slut as uh -huh. well. We all went to high school, actually middle school. Too. I've known Andrew since I was like five. Uh, was at any point Jessica Pavone your teacher? Middle school, she was like the <laughs> orchestra teacher. She wasn't my teacher, but she was my friend's teacher. I was in orchestra in high school, but I was when she came to the school. I think I was in seventh grade, and she was teaching the sixth grade orchestra, and I was in the I was already like a level above what she was teaching uh -huh. and that but I had friends who took her music class it's funny there's this one photo of her in one of my yearbooks where she's conducting and she looks so fucking intense and just like she's like she looks like she's conducting like a philharmonic or something and right. I, I remember being in middle school and seeing like seeing this photo in my the yearbook I mean like whoa like that's fucking intense. Like this person cares. Cause I felt like, you know, people in middle, like people don't care about that kind of music. So I just remember seeing this look of like someone caring so much about what they were doing, even if it was like a bunch of middle schoolers who like fuck off all day right. and like, don't like, it's so funny cause my memory yeah. of that time period was like, we'd be hanging out and she was like, yeah, I was fucking hung over. I had to teach these little brats. Maybe she was hung over. She's like, <laughs> She, I'll have to find it, but yeah, she's cool. She's really amazing. I've run, I've run into her a few times. I remember like the first time I like met her as like an adult in New York. She was like, "Was I your teacher?" I was like, "My friends, but that's so me. funny." Yeah. So yeah, I mean, so Andrew, whole... Andrew was listening to this crazy shit when he was like nine. Yeah, he was he was in like a death metal band when we were in like sixth grade. So I kind of, but he was like, I wasn't really into death metal in sixth grade, and he was like, my entire life he was like shitting on my music taste and yeah. like everything I Makes did, sense. you know, because that's just how he is. Um, but I always liked the music that he was writing and that he'd be working on, and then. He introduced me to Nick McMaster, uh -huh. who is still one of my best friends. But uh, when when we were together, he kind of introduced me to black metal. And at the time, uh, I was in grad school studying. You know, I was getting like my MFA in composition, and I was still really in this mindset where I was just totally obsessed with post minimalism. Like that was just mm. my favorite kind of music at mm -hmm. the time like, 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 like who like, what's that uh, John Adams yeah. like his but like his piano music was really like John Adams and John Luther Adams uh, you know Sakamoto just, yeah, yeah stuff like that I just really was very attracted to like everything about like the the sense of syncopation and rhythm that post-minimalism had but it still had that like emotional content that I feel like you know stuff like romanticism and impressionism have it felt like it still had that it wasn't quite as sterile as minimalism mm -hmm. um and i wanted my music to kind of be like that and i remember when nick started showing me black metal i was like oh this is cool because black metal shares so much in common with like traditional minimalism because they both rely on like that sense of like repetition like a steady pulse and there's this commitment to tonality and yeah. melody um and i feel like if you know if you looked at a score for like you know mgua or burzum or something like if someone scored that out i feel like it would look very similar mm -hmm. to like a steve reich score totally 
so I remember when I started getting into black metal, I was very excited because it felt like there was a genre of music I wasn't aware of that shared all these traits in common with other kinds of classical music that I really liked. So I got very excited about it. And then I just kind of like went down the rabbit hole and got obsessed. You know, Steve Reich lives around the corner from here. He lives in the building behind this building. Let's go say hi. Uh, let's not. He's, <laughs> but he, I wonder what he would say or think if I was like, hey, you know, your music's just like a, a black metal music. But it is though. But the funny thing about like what I thought was so funny about black metal was this like insistence. Like if you remove the screeching banshee howls yeah, in yeah. black metal, you're left with extremely pretty music and very... Very, very catchy riffs. And I couldn't stop thinking about what it would be like if you orchestrated these songs for like an you know like a set of instruments that wasn't heavily distorted guitars it would sound so pretty like yeah. it would sound like you were listening to philip glass or something totally. because it's just like these like repetitive notes all very rhythmic um and very melodic it's funny you know that so, band um wolves in the throne room yeah like when I, i've had times and i'm not like a huge fan or anything but you know i've certainly checked them out and listened to mm -hmm. records from beginning to end and have sort of I can think of a couple times where I was kind of getting emotional listening to it. Oh, was, it's very, it's extremely emotional. And at the time, I was like, what's wrong with me? I'm listening to metal. Why am I like on the verge of tears? But of course, it's like, mm -hmm. it's because it's the same content. Yeah, exactly. As, as the stuff that you're describing. Yeah. That's why, I, that's why it was so exciting to me. That's why I like it so much. Yeah. And then you have a band like Kralis where they have that similar like rhythmic displacement that I feel like post-minimalism has where it's like they'll change you know they'll change time signature or they'll like do a rhythm that just like totally offsets mm -hmm. some like the whole feel of the piece and that is something that i like a lot and, so. and how much of the aesthetics from that world are appealing to you what i mean the mean? way the stuff is presented like the name of your record is blood root i uh -huh. have to imagine that that influence <laughs> came more from that world than it did from sakamoto it did it did well the funny <laughs> thing is that like i liked the fact that blood root sounds metal <laughs> yeah and a lot of people picked up on that but the thing is i was i i am like influenced by metal like i think in subconscious ways when i was naming because the thing the truth is i'm not a very i'm not a very like good writer like i don't write poetry or things oh, you like mean, that like, with words. so so you're right with words i don't think i'm like especially gifted so when it comes to naming things sometimes i can feel at a loss so sometimes when i you know i had this joke that i made on twitter a couple of weeks ago about how all musicians have these like really silly fake names for all their pieces hmm. before they get like the pristine right. final title that looks really nice on right, a concert right, right, program right. or a cd um and so a lot of the pieces for bloodroot just straight up didn't have names and then when it came time and I was like, shit, like I have to name these because we're sending my record to the pressing plant yeah. soon. Um, I was thinking about certain themes that I felt like tied all the pieces together. And I was really, I was researching a lot of, this is going to sound random, but I was researching a lot of plants at the time. Uh -huh. And I felt like the aesthetic with the visuals I was going for had this kind of like, inherently natural, like floral, sure. like, very delicate feel. And I felt like there were, I just started like kind of making these comparisons to like the delicacy of how some of the pieces felt and how fragile they felt with just things like flowers and plants and things like that and how those things are very healing to me and I try to surround them you know there's mm -hmm. I feel like I always come back to nature and how comforting it is to me um and so then I kind of decided that it would be cool if I unified all these pieces by giving them all names that were either flowers or mm -hmm. plants so then that just became like a whole research project into the different 
like kinds of plants. I and love flowers. when these themes emerge. Like and, and it, yeah. it's, it's like it kind of like shines a light on mm-hmm. what you've been doing in the dark. Yeah, and so I, I kind of and then I started like researching like like what kind of flower does this piece remind me of, or like is there like a shape of like like the the shape of this piece? Does it remind me of a plant? Like so I kind of that's the mindset that I went with, and then when I discovered bloodroot and the fact that like it you know it blooms at a certain time of year and it actually has oh it's a real like thing a subs- oh yeah oh, it's a know. real plant oh it's a real plant i've yeah i yeah it's a plant and it's it's cool because here look look at what it looks like it's really pretty but it does have a thing where if you like snap it and like like if you snap it at the neck or something like there is like a blood like really red thing that will come out of it yeah but it's a oh, very yeah, it's cool yeah though. But I loved that there was this kind of like scary, like very like yeah, new, totally. like metal name for this thing. That like was that. Ah, uh, that that's a cat. It looks like that. Right. I swiped. It's the white. It's right, a white right, right, flower. Right. Yeah. With yeah, and then that's what the substance looks right. like, which is insane it's to wild me. Looking. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it kind of reminded me how like the there's this like inherent prettiness to the prepared piano sounds that's tempered by something that's like this like harsh physical metal like literal metal yeah yeah, yeah. so that was kind of my thinking yeah so (laughs) yeah it's funny it's very it's very like dark sounding (laughs) when did you start playing with charlie you you played on charlie's record right yes i did (laughs) is it amazing it's crazy you know what's funny is honestly i have no fucking idea how it's gonna sound when it's all done because it's gonna sound amazing yeah i uh when did i start i've been playing with charlie for i think like about a year maybe like i've known him a long time we've been friends a very long time he's one of my good right. friends um i started playing with him for his ensemble like probably about a year ago i think it was like early 2016 yeah when he started sending asked he asked me if I would want to be an ensemble for like his chamber music songs mm-hmm. that he's singing and he has like a whole kind of array of instruments accompanying him and so I was obviously down to work with him mm-hmm. um and uh I've played a couple of shows with him where it's me uh Kaylee yeah. on violin Russell from Yarnwire Russell's on amazing. Perco- yeah he's great um on percussion and then sometimes he'll have like singers or horn players but the thing about you know the live performances is that we do is that because charlie's been writing these pieces and i guess like sibelius or finale where he has all these like extra like horn parts and string swells and all these like extra electronic midi sounds yeah so it's it's funny because it'll be like four of us on stage and then there's this huge sound because charlie just has this like arsenal of backing tracks oh really that we're playing over like we're all like listening to a click track and it's very very difficult for me to envision like i know this is gonna sound stupid but i've always been really bad at it at envisioning how like a midi sound will sound in real life like i never compose within sibelius to write anything i always use like just piano because yeah. i just can't stand midi instruments so it's very hard for me to imagine what this music is gonna sound like with real instruments because i all i hear are just like yeah, the yeah. mini like it's just and because i've performed with it so many times the midi sounds are like burned in my brain <laughs> so i'm like oh what's it like so i'm like i have no fucking idea you might not what it's like it as much like. i i bet i'm gonna like it more I bet but you it's too, but... but i just like I don't know if I'm prepared for how insane it's going to sound like because Charlie is definitely very very you know he's very precise about everything like there was a a piece I did that I recorded for him where he he literally had me record every measure by itself sure like 
you know, he's he's just very he he has a vision and I That was I'm for sure, this for this record. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure it's gonna be amazing. I just I'm really curious to hear what it's gonna sound like. It's probably gonna be scary. It's probably gonna be really scary. <laughs> yeah. And then you were just in the studio with Toby the other day, right? Yeah. How yeah. was that? Toby's like one of my these are like two love, of my, these are like my two of my yeah, main guys. I love I know, I love Toby. I've been like an obsessive fan of Toby since I was fifteen. Like Andrew showed me K.O. Dot when I was 15. Yeah. He showed me... Um, Put choirs in the, the eyes. Yeah. The, he, I remember he sent me the Manifold Curiosity and he was like, you need to just like lay down on your back and listen to this piece and just like blast it. And I did that. I remember being 15 and like when that clarinet solo yeah, comes yeah, in. Yeah. And like, I That's just, the moment. I just felt like my soul leaving my body and I was like, what is this? Like I had never heard anything and it was so, so completely beautiful that I just became totally obsessed with K.O. Dot starting from age 15 so like so my whole like my my boy like my first serious boyfriend like we bonded because he was obsessed with ko dot like he oh, had wow. actually he'd gone to see see them he had given mia like some of his teeth because she collects teeth yeah I remember yeah. That. yeah so like so we had this like intense bond over how much we loved them and i feel like i would go to ko dot shows and be like a little fangirl and then once yeah. i moved to new york i'm like older i'm an adult now yeah, so yeah, i yeah. kind of became like you know i'm like a contemporary of his. yeah 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 now, um, so I was very, very excited when Toby did the Madonna Whore show at Roulette last that year. That was amazing. Oh, you were there? I was there. Oh, cool. I was, yeah. the, I was in the balcony with Charlie. Yeah. I was like, <laughs> so, like, when Toby asked me, I was like, I'll do whatever oh, you want me to do. Yeah. Like, please. And it was really challenging because I had never really understood, you know, when you listen to Toby's music, you know that there is so much complexity behind it, even if you don't understand it on a surface level, sure. just with like his rhythms. But reading his scores was like, it was a real challenge for me. I had to count my face off for that performance. He likes to count. Yeah. I've, he, he, I've never yeah. counted so much in my life for something. It was really, it was so much harder than I thought it was going to be because he was like, oh, it's just, he's like, you know, pads and melodic things, but it was very, very tricky. But the effect is so wonderful. Like that's what. But that you know, he, that thing yeah. you said a second ago about feeling like like you're you were leaving your body. It's mm -hmm. like that's kind of how. It's funny, Toby. Like on one hand, he never talks about his stuff like it's it's complex. You know, he always mm -hmm. presents it like eh, you know, it's just a pad. It says. And in fact, it is the construction of it is all of this crazy complex mm -hmm. stuff. But then the other side of it is like what it. Like you can just enjoy it. Mm -hmm. Like that music is to me most enjoyable when you just like turn everything off and almost like new age music, you know? Yeah. And he he constructs that very very. It's very sly the way he puts it all together. Yeah, it's very well done. I, it was just funny. I was laughing when I was in rehearsals and I felt like I kept fucking up so much. And Keith just like gave me this look of sympathy. He's like, "Yeah, this is what I deal with all the time. Like this shit is hard." <laughs> But yeah, I'm really excited. I I'm only on one song on that album okay. and I basically like asked Toby to be on it because Toby <laughs> Toby was like, "Hey, just so you know like most of the synth stuff and MIDI stuff is just going to be like programmed, like the computer will play it." So I don't didn't, don't want you to think that I, you know, wasn't asking you for a reason. Yeah. And then I was like, but there's that one song with real piano. Like, can I play that one? Yeah. And he was like, all right, sure. So I, but I was glad that I did it because I just like, now I'm like, yes, I mean, now I'm on a Toby record. That stuff <laughs> is my favorite of all of his stuff. It's so beautiful. Yeah. It's really gorgeous. It's really interesting to see how his writing style changes when it's such a, I don't want to say it's simple because it still is so complex. You just don't realize it. Yeah. But um, just the overall effect, you know, 
the the ballads are just so dreamy and pretty. You know? Yeah, there was this day last winter, like last winter, uh, I li- that was like the record I listened to most. Mm-hmm. And I was upstate, and I was driving this van like around this mountain that was just covered in snow. You couldn't see anything; it was all white. And now, and I was listening to it every time I listen to that record. That's all. Like I'm just I'm back in that van going to the snow. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I love when you have like those specific memories tied. So do you feel? I mean, do you have? It, sound, it sounds like you've got like a good set of people in New York. That yeah, it's yeah, it's it's great. I feel so lucky, and it's funny because Andrew was the person who introduced me yeah to everyone here. But it, it makes me really happy to feel like there is this extremely supportive community of people who like we all do different things, but everyone is very supportive and very yeah. enthusiastic about everything that everyone's working on. So it, yeah, I feel really lucky. I mean, like that kind of is what I feel like keeps me here you know yeah just the fact that there's constantly so many people around me doing amazing things that kind of helps that's really helps i motivate. think like yeah. the thing about new york and new mm-hmm. york musicians you know like i and that's the thing that you just you don't really see it other places because there's so many people with such like yeah. a broad range of activity but something like having so much you know like um i gotta think of the best way to say this without getting in trouble uh like in the jazz world, I don't want to turn off the mic. I'll tell you what, okay. uh, what the full thought was. In the jazz world, it's like you know people historically they've come to New York because they want to they wanted to play with Miles, they wanted to play with Bird, you know they wanted to, you know. Mm-hmm. And now it's like you kind of see that same thing, like in other worlds, you know, contemporary composition in mm-hmm. metal. It's like there are these people here who people flock to the city to work with their their heroes in a lot of yeah, ways sure. and because it's like the way the city works it's like very quickly you can be in the orbit of these people because everyone's just here working yeah it's amazing mm-hmm. it, it's funny how the circle actually gets pretty small once it gets really small yeah it it's funny and you know like one of, when you were talking about that one of the people i immediately thought of was colin marston right because he's got his whole universe yeah out that, there. And, and it's like people come from everywhere just to like record at his studio or work with him like, yeah it's a thing that happens here yeah so well and it also it, it's what ends up coloring everything so many people you know go to work with colin because they like his aesthetic mm-hmm. they like him as a person they like his approach they like his his sound world you know but so there's like improvisers working there and there's you know metal bands working there mm-hmm. and he mastered my record yeah yeah that's why so many people were like metal <laughs> because because colin did it yeah 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 and what I mean, so you're doing, you're gonna do another record of piano stuff. Yeah, my next, my next record is uh, prepared piano again, which I didn't plan. I didn't plan for it, but it just kind of happened yeah. that way. I was going to try to just do normal piano with like electronics because I felt like that would be an easier thing for me to take on the road because I definitely want to start performing more when I start promoting this record when it comes out um but it just so happened i had like a crazy day this summer where like my whole process just completely changed yeah uh, what did well, that look like well um this summer i was working on a commission for margaret Langtan for ecstatic music fest oh, cool. and i was pulling my fucking hair out because she kept rejecting everything i wrote for her she she rejected so many things that i wrote for her and it was so i've never had so much trouble writing for someone uh-huh. and especially because there's so much weight it's for this like george crumb concert so okay. I, there's so much weight so i was really struggling i was like weeks i was at home like working and i wasn't getting anywhere and then my parents went away for a few days um I like went to the woods, I went swimming, yeah. and then I came back and I had my whole recording set up and my friend was like, why don't you play? Right. But I was like, fuck it, I'll try. So I started playing and as soon as I started playing, I was like, oh shit, like 
this is this is really good like whatever I'm playing like and the thing is I improvise but I don't improvise as like a mean like as a means to an end yeah you know like it's not like a regular part of my process as right. much as it used to be but it can be good for finding ideas yeah yeah but this day I improvise I would sit down and improvise and something happens to me where my improvisations were so different because it felt like I would sit down and I'd improvise something and it sounded like a fully formed you, you clicked record on it yeah I yeah. recorded everything I recorded like two hours like I, and I recorded individual like I would play for like five minutes then I'd stop and we'd like laugh for like five minutes and then I would do it again and I did it like 12 times and every time I was like what the fuck is happening everything I'm playing sounds so good like I feel like I tapped into this part of my subconscious where suddenly the way I was playing felt very much based on like the way my physical impulses were mm -hmm. impacted by you know all the sensory information that they were getting mm -hmm. but um I recorded everything and then I transcribed it all and then I learned From those, it again. Yeah, yeah, and then I learned it again. And that's what I performed at Roulette in October. And then I, the next weekend I went to the studio and re-recorded everything. You kept it as is. Yeah, it's all pretty much all as is. But I, I'd like yeah. to hear the recording with I'll send, the I'll, initial recording. They sound, the album and the other versions, they sound like exactly alike. That day my process changed. Right. And the, the way... Because I think really what happened to me mentally was I was really struggling to write this piece for Margaret. And I just sat down to play with no goal or intention in mind. It was just to play. And I think that did something to me mentally where suddenly it was like all of the stress and all of the things that were inhibiting me creatively just fell away. And I was able to just make music that sounded really natural and that was developed that was channeling a lot of things that I had been feeling mm -hmm. and it the way that it came out was very cohesive and I was really happy with how all of it sounded and I also did things that I just normally don't sure. do um it was a really insane experience but everything that I made I listened back and I was like this is good enough these improvisations are solid enough that I can work with them. So I learned, I like, I edited, like some of it, I like edited down because some, like for some of the pieces I was just playing like for 15 minutes sure. straight. So I like cut it a little bit, but everything is, all the content came exactly from what I played that day. Yeah. So I recorded all of my improvisations and then I listened back and then I spent about two months just obsessively transcribing everything that I played then I learned how to play it again. And then after I performed it, I re-recorded all of it in a, diff a little different state of mind. Mm -hmm. And then I've been adding synth overdubs to everything, kind of just trying to craft a sonic world mm -hmm. around it. So the album feels much more fluid. There's a much more improvisatory, like flowing element to Longer the whole pieces. record. Yeah. yeah, like on the last record, everything was like super short, like one to four minutes long. Most of the pieces on my new record are like six plus. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I feel like people will like get immersed. It allows you to get immersed in the pieces a little bit more. And the synth worlds I'm creating, I think, give like a really nice, uh, just a really nice context for the piano to sit within. It kind of feels like these little, I don't know, these just little like outer space worlds. <laughs> yeah. I feel like at least for myself and a lot of people I know, like as musicians, like we're always hoping for aiming for something that reveals something that we didn't know we didn't know like that's where mm -hmm. like the excitement happens like yeah. holy sh I, I don't know I, I, you know i you know I, I 
took an acid hit you know and yeah. then i started playing this way i never played before or you know a lot of times like it's like more mundane you'll hear like a sound come from your synth and you're like whoa what the fuck was that like let me i want to do something with that yeah you know? for sure and for me it was like as soon as i started playing that day i was like i have to keep doing this like something's happening something has changed with my playing you know it didn't feel forced you know sometimes you like when i listen to some of my pieces and i'm like oh i was like really trying like you can f like hear how hard i'm trying yeah and with these it feels so natural and it's so satisfying for me to hear myself play like this um because i just sound really free and i think that it's an enjoyable thing to have to listen to sure as you know you don't want to hear yourself sound like you're struggling and it's nice <laughs> that it feels so fluid so i'm excited i'll send you i'll send yeah, you I'd the recordings i'll send you both versions because it's still like a work you're still shaping it yeah, yeah. Well, I, I remember because mario was at the show and he was like this is the best music i've ever heard from you and i yeah. was like it was all improvised initially he was like what mm -hmm. i was like yeah like some crazy things happen when you like tap into mm -hmm. you know but it, but i but it was also like i hadn't Im been improvising for a while and i think just not feeling like oh i have to write this it has to be like this like it has to have this kind of because the piece that i'm writing for margaret it's for um it's for the ecstatic music fest uh -huh. and it's the concert where they're honoring george crumb and they specifically commissioned me because they wanted it to sort of be in line like use tech use extended techniques like do things that crumb does but do it in your own way mm. and that put a lot of pressure on me because i feel like that's that's a that's a tall order mm -hmm. you know and even though i'm not trying to sound like george crumb the pressure of being you know he's going to be at the concert and this iconic pianist i know yeah this iconic pianist is playing my piece i felt like i needed to like write something that was very like academic and serious uh -huh. and not you know it just it put all this pressure on me and it made it so difficult for me to like actually like have any you know that creativity was i was just experiencing a blockage yeah and so just having a day where i just wasn't thinking about doing it for any specific person purpose other than to just play and how good it felt to play like that yielded like the best results it often so sometimes happens. yeah that often happens you got to yeah. just hang up that expectation yeah. hang up those you know and just work from an honest place yeah it was a big learning experience it changed a lot about how i feel like i approach music now yeah and what I'm about bands to. are you still doing any bands no, you know, I, I play in Charlie's bands occasionally. Yeah. I guess, you know, but that's not But no, a like, regular... collaborative thing at the moment? Uh, but no, I feel like I had to say no yeah. to all the band stuff because I'm very... My life is very hectic with freelancing, and I felt like whenever I'm in a band, I, I just focus so much on it, and it's very hard for me to balance different things, so I kind of just say no yeah to most of the offers i get yeah unless oh. it's like a one-time gig you know sure. i do a lot of things where like someone will need a keyboardist for like one show and i'll do something for that yeah 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 well um, i appreciate you coming over in the bitter ass cold today oh yeah for sure yeah thank you thanks for, for having me All right, that was Kelly Moran. You dig? Prepared piano stylings of Kelly Moran. Good shit. Uh, I'm enjoying this music quite a lot. Kind of sets a mood, don't you think? If you want to find out more about Kelly and check out some of her recorded music, go to kellymoran.bandcamp.com. 
good stuff she's doing. KellyMoran.bandcamp.com. Go to the 5049 website, check out some past episodes. Uh, there's a lot of good shit coming up, man. I, I got Sometimes I get scared, like, like, oh my God, I don't know if I have enough in the can. And I freak out and I, I get a bunch of stuff recorded. And now I'm sitting on a pile of really good interviews. Uh, so you guys have some good stuff to look forward to. Um, I mean, if you like this show, that is. Uh, yeah, look forward to that. And that's it. Hope you guys are all doing well. Hope you're staying warm. And I'll talk to you next week.